Thank you, Noel. It's nice to be with you all this morning. And if no one has said Happy Valentine's Day to you yet, then let me be the first. Valentine's Day did not start as a Christian holiday, uh, but it's a good reminder that we need to express our love to uh, one another and those around us at least once a year. Uh, Jesus said that the two great commandments are love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So, it is not antithetical to have one day set aside each year to remind us to love one another. And on top of that, it gives florists and candy makers an opportunity to triple their prices on their products so that procrastinators and last-minute shoppers uh, are reminded that if you wait, it costs you lots more money to purchase something for a loved one than if you would have planned ahead. I'm just saying. Nevertheless, Valentine's Day is a good reminder of something you already know. And that's what I'm here to do this morning, and that is to remind you of something that you already know, but it's good every now and then to hear it over and over again. Now, I spent many years sitting in these very pews uh, listening to the preacher, oftentimes my father, and wondering what it would be like to preach before this congregation. I always sat in the third pew over there, but it's roped off, so I couldn't sit there this morning. <clears throat> I'm going to fix that next week. Uh, and I, I wondered what it was like to preach to you guys, but uh, I always thought you guys were all too scary. And so I pursued other ventures. That is, until the Lord uh, started changing my heart and my mind, and I ended up in a church of almost 1,000 people preaching on a fairly regular basis. Uh, now I'm in charge of 65 churches, and I'm... I'm responsible for their pastors, and I get to listen to them on a weekly basis thanks to COVID-19 and the necessity to put all of our services online so that I can hear them at my leisure. Now, I didn't plan any of that, um, and uh, those of you who knew me many years ago wouldn't have thought that it would be possible either, so we're in the same boat there. But here we are, and like uh, Isaac's servant who went out to find a wife for his master, who said, I, comma, being in the way, comma, the Lord led. And that's basically my story. I firmly believe in the sovereignty of God, and I'm willing to be a subject within his kingdom, and I trust that you are also. There's a door in our family room that opens up onto our patio, and my wife, Donna, who grew up in this church, places bird food in a feeder on the deck so that the little birds can come and easily find nourishment. It also provides a taunting for a cat that lives in our house. The cat belongs to my wife. I love my wife, and so the cat exists. The cat, Rivka by name, wants to devour the little birds that come to eat at the bird feeder, so she sits at the patio door looking at them, but unable to get to them because the glass separates her from the deck. She has no front claws. Nevertheless, she paws at the door, and even though she's done it hundreds and thousands of times, the glass doesn't move and she can't attack. The birds have safety because of the glass and because of us humans who won't open the door, so we protect the birds from the evil cat. What's equally interesting is that the cat hates my granddaughter and hides whenever she comes to visit. 
When, however, my granddaughter is playing on the deck and the patio door is closed, the cat taunts her, uh, knowing that as long as the door is closed, she's safe from the vicious arms of a three-year-old who really only wants to pet her and say, nice little kitty. The glass protection goes both ways. But what happens when there doesn't seem to be any protection around and uh, there is no protection from evil things that are all around us and as Pastor Justin said earlier, the whole world seems like it's falling apart. So how do or how did you react when you found out that a loved one learned that he or she had COVID-19? How did you react when you feared that you might be a carrier of COVID? How did you react when you heard or hear, hear that your job is non-essential and, and that you're being terminated because your company won't be reopening? How do you react when you're told that you can't visit your parents or your children or your grandchildren until some governor decides to ease up on social restrictions? How do you react when it just seems that the whole world is falling apart? But during a similar crisis, the Bible scholar Arno Gabeline stated that the burning question of the day was, when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, 70 years after he penned those words, we ask the same question. What can righteous people do when self-serving sinister actions of unrighteous people systematically dismantle the financial, moral, and spiritual foundation on which a godly society is built? What can we do when we thought what, we're, what we thought were the firm, sure foundations of our own lives, our, our families, our, our finances, our communities, and even our church? show signs of stress, weakness, and failure. What can the righteous do? Well, the psalmist, King David, experienced this, and he asked the very first, the same question, and then he wrote a psalm as an answer to that question. So turn with me in your Bibles or your electronic devices to uh, Psalm 11. And this is a short psalm. It's in a series of short psalms that were intended to be sung by people as a way to remind them of God's Singing songs helps connect both sides of our brains and enables us to recall thoughts and truths every time that a particular tune is heard. That's why we sing to God as an expression of worship. And it's also why when you hear a tune, you can't help but rehearse the words. That's why it's always better to fill your ears and mind with Christian music rather than some of the rotten music that's prevalent on the radios today. Psalm 11. I'm reading from the English Standard Version, which is a little different from that which is in your pew, but we'll get through it. It says, for the director of music, it's a psalm of David. He writes, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright at heart. If the foundations are destroyed... What can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 11 is a reminder that our God is sovereign. 
and that's the title of this morning's message. And although we won't sing it because we don't have any recordings from 3,000 years ago, uh, we do want to allow the picture, which is drawn by King David, to refresh our minds and challenge our thinking concerning who God is and what God does. Verse 3 asks the pivotal question in the psalm, and that is, if or when the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? <clears throat> and that was a burning question that was posed by David's friends when he was in a time of crisis. David had enemies. You remember them. The Philistines, the Amalek, the Amalekites, King Saul, his own son Absalom. They all wanted him dead. King David lived through times where people were literally putting their arrows against the strings and their bows in order to shoot him in the heart and cause his death. As it says in verse 2, look, the wicked bend the bow. They fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Today, people use guns. They get the same result. David faced imminent and intense threats from all sides. His friends advised him to do what most people would do, and that is to flee like a bird to the mountains, as it says in verse, 11, in verse 1. The mountains provided safety, it was supposed, but these enemies were strong and they were clever and they were everywhere, even sh shooting into dark shadows, as it says in verse 2. So it seemed as if David had no chance to stay where he was. And conventional wisdom told him that he was to give up, to get out, and run away. And isn't that what a lot of people do today in times of trouble? Don't they try to run away to dull their senses with alcohol, with drugs, and just give up in fear and despair? Well, despite the practical advice of his friends, David knew of only one place where he could flee and he could find true safety. And it was not to the mountains, but to the one who made the mountains. And so he said in verse 1, he said, In the Lord I take refuge. He believed God. He knew and he could trust God as his safe haven in the midst of any storm. In fact, his faith was so strong in God that he disputed even the suggestion that he would run for his life, either literally or figuratively. He asked, how can you even say this to my soul? But he had this inner peace and security because of three truths which he remembered about God. And these truths helped him in spite of the crazy world within which he found himself. And these truths which he identified are timeless and they can help us today when we recall them to our memory and they're simple enough that even I can remember them. Can you? Number one, to remember where God sits. Verse four begins, the Lord is in his holy temple, the Lord's throne is in heaven. In this unpredictable world, David reminds us that the sovereign Lord of the universe resides in his holy temple. He is seated on the heavenly throne, and the earth is nothing more than his footstool. Nothing is outside of God's jurisdiction. No one is bigger, no one is stronger, no one is more formidable than our God. And David realized that the rulers of this world, despite their political or military might, are nothing compared to our God. They might individually think that they are powerful and can control things, but as the great King Nebuchadnezzar learned, compared to God, they are nothing. Back up two Psalms, 
and look with me at Psalm 9, and let me read to you verses 7 through 10, where again David repeats the same thought. He writes, But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put your trust in you. For you, O God, have not forsaken those who seek you. Get the picture there? God lives forever. God is just. God loves justice. His throne embodies justice. God judges justly. But besides being the judge of the world, he's the one that you and I can turn to when we're oppressed, when we're in trouble, when we need help, because this judge, this God, knows you personally and knows exactly what you need all the time. Now, from God's control point above the fray and the noise of the world, David understood that the Lord would hear his distress and save him from his enemies. Now, not everybody knows that. Only those who personally know God's name, only those who have a personal relationship with God, who can really call him their father. Now, there are some who think that by doing righteous acts, religious acts, performing sacred functions, that might qualify them as having an ear with God. But Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except through him. So although many may believe that there is a God, only those who know him personally can be confident in his protection and his provision. Here's a question for you. How well connected are you in God? Do you spend more time talking to God in prayer through his word? Or do you figure he'll read your thoughts that you post on Facebook or Twitter? Turn over now to Psalm 18. In the other direction, Psalm 18, David again repeats these truths. And so in Psalm 18, the first six verses, the Psalm of David, he says, I love you, O Lord, you're my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress. He's my redeemer and my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. He's my shield and the horn of my salvation. He's my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who's worthy to be praised and I'm safe from my enemies. Cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. David remembered where God sits. He sits on his throne. He's judging the world, and yet he's always willing to listen to you and to me. You ever feel that uh, things are out of control, out of your control, that others around you control your life, that you're nothing but a pawn in a bigger game and you don't even know what the rules are? Isn't it comforting to know that God isn't surprised by anything, regardless of how things go, and that he sits above it all and he really does have everything in control? Now, we have our issues. They're not the same as what uh, David had, but they're just as real. And when we do, we need to remember where God sits. And we need to remember that God is ultimately in control. 
too often we look around at our lives and what's happening to us and we think that everybody in the world struggles with the same issues that we do. But they don't. Regardless of the issues or fears we have, when our confidence is in God's presence and in God's power, it causes fear to flee and it gives strength for every day. Regardless of COVID-19 or whatever happens politically, whatever comes our way, we need to remember where God sits. How well and how often do you remember that God is in control? Let's not forget that. But secondly, we need to remember, according to David, what God sees. So look at me at verses 4 and 5. It says, His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Bible you have in your pew, the New American Standard, translates these verses this way. It says, He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. So from his heavenly throne, God observes the sons of men. He sees them. He examines them. Now that's both comforting and scary. But we understand that God is omnipresent. He is always here. He is always around us. He is always with us. He is always present, observing what we do and even what we think. We know that we can't hide from God, and there is nowhere where God isn't. And I understand that's a pretty heavy thought for this morning, but uh, let's go on. The text says that God not only sees the righteous, he even tests the righteous. And when they pass the test, he's pleased. Do you remember what James, the brother of Jesus, said in, in uh, James chapter 1? I memorized it in the King James when I was still young at this church. It said, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. And I used to wonder, what kind of temptations did divers have? Are there mermaids down there? I mean, what's going on? I didn't know. Uh, newer translations make it a little clearer. It says, count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So there's actually a purpose for our testing and the trials that come our way, and that's to develop our reliance upon and deepen our relationship in the God that we have in our Creator. So when trials come, when times are tough, when it appears that everything is falling apart, there is still a God who is in heaven, and he is still in control. And with that knowledge, regardless of what's happening to us, we should say, I can deal with it. Bring it on. Consider it a growing point in your life. And instead of lashing out at someone or smashing the wall with your fist or being angry at God, recognize that God is in control and all things will work together for good for his children what the Bible says, and that's true all the time. Now, because God sees everything and he knows everything, he even knows the intents of our hearts. The text says that God hates those who love violence. Look again at verse 5. But his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It's not only us who hate the wicked things that people do, God hates the wicked things that people do, and it goes against his very nature, and it cuts him to the core. 
Now, you might be surprised that the English word in our text, violence, is a Semitic word that's pronounced Hamas. It has the same meaning in both Hebrew and in Arabic, and it literally means violence. So when you hear about a political entity in the Middle East called Hamas, what should you expect from them? And if you look on the website of Hamas and you read the charter of Hamas, one of the major things they want to accomplish is the destruction of Israel and the Jewish people through violent means. They've been true to their name. But their intents have not gone unnoticed by our God who is in the heavens because God hates violence. He hates injustice. He is not pleased when evil men do evil things against others. And a day of reckoning is going to come, and woe to that man or woman who perpetrates violence against innocence. And that goes for any violence. Antifa, BLM, Proud Boys, God knows what they did and will repay them for their violence, for God hates violence. Martin Luther King was correct. If you want to protest, do it peacefully. No violence. God sees everyone and everything. No one escapes his notice. And again, that's both comforting and scary, for there's nothing of which God is not aware. No thought, no action, no attitude. It's all known to God. It sort of reminds me of a little song that we used to sing at Christmas time concerning Santa Claus. He sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when we're awake. He knows if we've been good or bad. You know the rest of the song. But our God does that all the time. And on top of that, he cares and he comforts and he helps and he forgives. And he does that for Christ's sake. So we have no better recipe for peace and uh, in this uncertain world than to remember that God's divine approval rests on those who love him and who remain faithful to him, regardless of the circumstances. There are 7.8 billion people in the world and God knows every thought and counts for every hair on every head and my little brain can't comprehend that at all and it's no wonder that secularists gave up and just decided that if God started everything he must have just let it go and he's not been involved in the affairs of the world there's even some Christians who believe that God doesn't have all things figured out and he's waiting for us to do the right thing so he can complete his work. But for those who remember what David remembered, that God sees it all, that he examines the righteous, his sovereignty is a great source of comfort and encouragement. But, my friends, it can also be a stern warning because you can't run from God. You can't hide from God. You can't escape his knowledge of what you do or even what you think. Because if you're a believer, your sin might be forgiven, but the consequences of your sin can mar your life and your testimony. There is no place where God isn't already there. He sees all. Well, in the midst of great difficulty, David found comfort in the fact that the Lord God, the omniscient one, sees all, knows all, tests all, and after all is said and done, he's going to reward the righteous. So, Remember where God sits, remember what God sends, sees, and then thirdly, remember what God sends, and that's in verses 6 and 7. It says, let him rain coals on the wicked 
fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Now our translation says, the ESV says, let him rain coals on the wicked. But other translations say he will rain fiery coals on the wicked. Our culture often uh, glamorizes the bad guys. Seems that they get all the money, the prestige and the power, and they seem to be successful. And in fact, the ongoing power grab in our country makes it seem like the bad guys are winning, that the bad guys are invincible. It almost appears to me that those who govern us are more concerned about propelling their own lives and catering not to the disadvantaged and the dissolution and disenfranchised, but to the extreme elements of society and ignoring the vast majority of our population who simply want to live our lives in peace. And that's troubling to most of us. And it has a detrimental effect and impact on our society. Well, David lived in an equally cruel and unfair world. Yet he lived with the confidence that God is faithful and just and that the righteous and holy would ultimately prevail. As far as the wicked, who seem like they get away with everything, remember this. They will get what is due to them. Verse 6 says, And the wicked... He will rain fiery coals and a burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. Almost sounds like a description of hell, doesn't it? Well, while the guy, bad guys seem to appear to have the upper hand and know they prosper for a season, and even if they kill the righteous and that righteous person might be me or you, in the end, their evil injustices will come face to face with a holy and a just God the ruler of heaven and earth, and they will get their due reward, which is an eternal punishment in hell. Now, the exact opposite is what I expect uh, from the group that we have here this morning and that we embody. A just God not only punishes the wicked, but he rewards the righteous. Look again at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. The Apostle Paul reminded us of this future reward in his letter to the church at Colossae as he wrote in Colossians 3, 23 and 24, he said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. By the way, this text is good for all of us working people to hear and to remember. We work for the Lord no matter what we do, whether it's a dirty job, a boring job, doing dishes, laundry, shoveling snow, chopping ice off the windshield so we can drive, or whatever. We do our work unto the Lord. There was someone in this church who taught me that decades ago, and I've still not forgotten since we know that God will ultimately make all things right and he'll reward us for hanging in there, we should be able to live boldly and victoriously in the world despite the presence and the power of sin. Thus we can and we must stand firm for our beliefs, even if we're sent to jail for upholding those beliefs, even if we're fined for violating some governor's dictates, even if we're killed for our faith. We have a hope that the world cannot take away. Missiologist Ed Stetzer wrote in his blog, when Christ rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, the trajectory of human existence went with him. 
the gospel tells us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's going to prepare a place for us where the brokenness of this world cannot kill and where tears will be wiped away forever. Our hope is not in this life, but it's in life beyond the grave. So what do we do when it seems like the foundations are being destroyed? Well, like David, we take refuge in God because we know where he sits, we know what he sees, and we know what he sends. Look again at verse 7. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, and the upright shall behold his face. Because God is righteous and he loves justice, those who are upright in heart, those who are truly his children, will one day see his face, will enjoy the privilege of real-time access with him, will have fellowship with him, will experience joy in him forever. And we won't have to wear a mask when we do it, face to face. Our short lives pass by so quickly, don't they? But eternity lasts forever. And we all know that. So why is it that we act like it doesn't really matter? Of course it matters. It's our destiny. And what makes more sense, pursuing creature comforts that last only for a while here on earth and then they fall apart, or those things that have eternal value and have blessings both now and for eternity? You can answer that question in your own mind. Well, 3,000 years after David penned this psalm, we have a clearer picture of the one in whom he sought refuge. Those who know the one who sits at the right hand of the Father have the surest foundation of all. We have one who will never change. We have one who will never disappoint. We have one who will never be destroyed. His throne is a throne of mercy and grace for which he invites his children to draw near to him in their time of need. And his name is Jesus. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest. For your souls. When foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, David's friends advise him to flee to the mountains, but David knew that fleeing is for the birds. Our confidence is not in flight, nor is it in glass, but in the Creator of all who loves us and gave Himself for us. When it seems like the very foundations of our society, our culture, our very lives are being destroyed and there doesn't seem to be anything we can do about it. What should we do? Should we give up in despair? I think not. Here's something we must not forget and we must always remember and it comes from Romans chapter 8 where Paul wrote, because we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And then he wrote, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, who can separate us from the love of God, of Christ? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
We have a friend who sticks closer than a brother. An advocate with the, very, with the Father, very God of very God, who loves us so much that he died that we might have life and have that more abundantly. And in return, all he wants us to do is live on his behalf and trust him. Trust him fully in every situation. We're all aware of how quickly our lives can change. In our household, when the phone rings, we immediately wonder what bad news we're going to hear. For often, that's how we hear about the death of a friend or a family member, and we've had several who have died suddenly, and the phone call was the way we found out. No one is immune from that kind of bad news. One of our pastor's wife went into the hospital two years ago for a simple outpatient procedure, but ended up going to heaven instead of going home. Her husband of 45 years stood behind the pulpit that weekend and made the following claim. Either God is in control of all things or he's not in control at all. I believe he's in control of all things and that settles it. I concur. What do you think? Is God in control of all things? Well, if so, then we must trust him fully in every situation. And that even includes today. And that's my challenge for you. This is what we need to believe and we need to say in our hearts and our minds, since God is in control, I will trust him in all the things of life. Can you do that? You can trust him and when you do, you'll live in peace without fear, regardless of the circumstances around us. What do we do when it appears that it's all falling apart? We remember who we serve. Our God is faithful. He is still in control. And let us not forget it. Not today, not ever. Pray with me. Thank you, Father, that in your word you have given to us hope and the reminder that you are still in control. You're still sovereign. And we know that things happen to us we don't like. We're out of our control. We can't make things happen. You're not unaware of it. You're not unaware of our problems. And yet you control all things ultimately, and they all work together. But sometimes you've got to live long enough to see it for us. But we're going to trust you. We do trust you. And in trusting you, we know that we're in good hands, and you will never disappoint us, because ultimately our desire is to be with you, to worship you, to serve you, and spend an eternity with all those who are truly your children. So help us to trust you in this situation we're in today and in every situation that comes our way. I pray those things in Jesus' name.